I'm in the business of wanting to resurrect that triumphant beast. Welcome to the Boundless Body, the podcast with the somatic doctor interviewing innovative thinkers about their perspectives relating to the arts and sciences of therapy. Expansion and contraction, that is the primary binary inside the construction of your body plan. Dr. B is a voyager in trauma resolution who brings compassion and humor to the adventure of healing. You study science enough and the bottom drops out and you're just like, holy. Enchanting elements of science, philosophy, and art. Discover the boundless body here on this podcast. Back to the mystery. So welcome to the Boundless Body Podcast. Um, This is Aaron Manning. Welcome, Aaron. Uh, So here's an intro. Um, Aaron Manning studies in the interstices of philosophy, aesthetics, and politics. She is a visionary thinker who bridges the worlds of art, philosophy, and the body with groundbreaking insights. Her work invites us to reimagine the boundaries of experience, emphasizing the potency of movement, sensation, and the non-human in the non-human in the fabric of life. Manning challenges us to think beyond the conventional, inspiring us to engage with the world in transformative ways. Through her, we learn that creativity is not just an act, but a way of becoming that can revolutionize how we interact with everything around us. Her books include Politics of Touch, Always More Than One, and for a pragmatics of the useless, which is, I just love that title. I mean, you just really <laughs> nailed it with that one for a pragmatics of the useless because everything is about utility and capitalism, right? It's like everything is about utility. So everything. you hit it out of the park with the title on that one, right? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. But then people have 400 pages to wade through. So maybe I, I should have made it a pamphlet instead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's complicated your writing and that's what one of the things that I really love about it is that it has it's so multi-layered. It really challenges you. It's like a, a kind of mental kung fu or something like that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That's a generous way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. In my dissertation I write um about uh who was it that guy the sacrifice guy um the for some reason at the moment his name is escaping me it might uh uh not, well Rene Girard was one of them um I'm trying to think of uh another French author that writes about utility and basically the the, the thing that is coming to mind is is that um you know the the true act of creativity is to sacrifice Ut- uh, the utility function uh, yeah. uh and, and once you sacrifice utility then you really have real contact right and that's one of the things that i talk about in psychology like i do couples therapy work and i you know do all all sorts of different types of work trauma resolution work somatic psychology and one of the things that i tell folks is is that we're actually uh terrified of real contact mm. And one of the ways of escaping real contact is by being obsessed uh, about utility, being obsessed about efficiency, 
being obsessed about like being in therapy to just grow and to grow and to grow or to do, you know, do a workshop to just keep on growing for what? For more utility to grow more, mm -hmm. you know, and if we put that on the sacrificial altar, what we have is real contact. But then the but then the irony and, and, the, and the paradox is, is that I think that we're actually afraid of real contact. It's intense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, another way of saying that would be that that it's all about us, you know, I mean, we have a tendency to center and, you know, this is what I've written about is whiteness, which which is not reducible to skin. It's a practice. It's an activity of being in a certain disposition toward the world that centers us again and again and again. And, and in the self-centering, what gives us the sense that we're doing something worthwhile is that it has value in that sense of usefulness. Um, and uh, so it's this kind of closed loop. And I think, you know, the, the idea of contact that you talk about is about the relation. It's not about me. It's about how the, the, the environment grows into something that isn't reducible to me or you, which takes time, which takes uh, discomfort, which is full of paradox, which is uneasy. But I think um, a lot can grow there in that, in that environment. If you enjoy the content, please subscribe, like us, and share. Dr. B offers a dynamic blend of therapeutic maps, modalities to help you catalyze, stabilize, and thrive. Book a session or free consultation at www.somaticdoctor.com. You write a lot, uh, of course, in the Deleuzian tradition about intensity. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, almost like there's a, um, to use like the, the trauma neurobiology term window of tolerance so that like there's this term window of tolerance, right? I like to think that there's a window of tolerance for various types of intensity, contact being one of them. And then of course there's many different types of contact, but can, can you, I'm wondering if we can just kind of riff a bit about <clears throat> various types of intensity and and both of us are really into dance. That's one of the things I really like about you. So like dance is a type of intensity. So I'm wondering if we can just talk about affective intensity and maybe even throw in something about body with our, without organs. I don't know. We'll see where it goes. Eh? <laughs> All that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have, um, let me start in a place that you probably don't expect me to start, which is with trauma. Um, um, so I have PTSD, so I know quite a bit about trauma. I have spent quite a bit of time in the environments that discuss trauma, including some long periods in a hospital, um, and have given a lot of thought to intensity in that regard um, from the angle of neurodiversity. So thinking about what is what is livable in any given um in any given moment you know what can what is what is manageable in any given moment and I, and i just wanted to begin with a with something that that i think you'll relate to right away so a lot of the folks that i uh, collaborate with and and think with are autistic and um, many of them have pretty severe ptsd because of uh, childhood trauma 
and just living in a world that excludes them in every possible way. Most of these folks that I'm thinking about right now are what one might call non-speaking, though it's a stupid way of talking about it because they're certainly very um, expressive. They just don't express with their mouths. Um, and and one of them, um, but in order for them to be in contact with me, um, usually in a distance uh, capacity, they need to write. So they would be people who would be working on a keyboard with somebody with them who would be um, helping activate their bodies for um, for ex yeah for expression. And what that means, if people aren't so familiar with it, is that the the autistic body is is like a Parkinsonian body in the sense that it has activation issues. It's hard to go from zero to a hundred. So like moving your arm to type is hard. You know, it's hard to get that that body movement going. You know, as a dancer, you'll understand that. And and so one of the people that I would uh, communicate with would have a tendency, you know, a sort of trauma informed tendency to put his foot um, on the keyboard. And, uh, and, and you can imagine that if somebody puts their foot on the keyboard, it's not, you know, making very many words. And, and one of the conversations we would have is, you know, does, is that, is it that kind of day? Like, is it a foot on the keyboard kind of day? And if it's a foot on the keyboard kind of day, that's a foot on the keyboard kind of day. And that's the, that's the breadth of our engagement. And we can begin there as a foot on the keyboard kind of day. But if the foot could go off the keyboard, then another kind of expression could be foregrounded. And I don't, so I'm saying that because I don't want to privilege one kind of intensity over another kind of intensity, right? So, so the foot on the keyboard day suggests to me that language hurts today, like the kind of language that neurotypicals mm -hmm. speak hurts today. And if language hurts today, my God, like we don't need to go there. But if it's a habit to put the foot on the keyboard, <laughs> And it's actually now hurting you because the foot on the keyboard is keeping us from being in another kind of expressive environment. Well, then let's get the foot off the keyboard, like just for five minutes and see what could happen then, you know? And so intensity in the way I think about it is about building a body. That's where I wanted to get to. So, so you know, when I think about the body without organs, a lot of people misunderstand that to mean that somehow our heart and our stomach and our organs were, you know, it's not what they mean at all, Deleuze and Guattari What they mean is that there are organizations to the body that are privileged. And these organizations produce a neurotypical body. They produce a body that is fully in control of its usefulness, of its ways of encountering the world in a very, very tight frame, in a normopathic frame. And, and, and bodies are just not that at all. Bodies are constantly reactivating their potentials to be in the world. They're not separate from the world. They're not excised from the world. They're, 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 they're relational entities that are always growing with the world. And in that sense, they are intensities. I mean, I don't know what else that could be. Um, so maybe I'll leave it there and see where, where that takes you. <clears throat> Yeah, the way that the body is classically constructed neurotypically or typically is as a cog in the in the machine, in the utilitarian machine, right? So I love this image of the foot on the keyboard, you know, and it uh, it reminds me of because um, I believe uh, you definitely wrote about Amanda Bags, right? And uh, in Always More Than One. 
And so I, I remember watching the YouTube video. So this is just a, a flag for uh, Drew to book, bookmark the piece about Amanda Beggs. We'll come back to that later so folks can check out the video. And in the video, Amanda says something really compelling. She says, you know, basically, if I don't come into your language, the typical language, then I, I'm, I'm basically not a person. You know, like if I don't have linguistic language, like I'm basically not a person in your books. And and, and I think that's just so compelling how uh, how language has like become basically like a virus. In my, in my book, I talk about language as a type of virus that just propagates like, uh, well, like a virus or like in California, we have star thistles. I don't know if you have uh, star thistles up there in northern uh northern canada but they're like these uh weeds that just propagate and you can't go outside and bare feet and stuff like that you know uh and you know there's just so much to get wrong with language these days right it's like it's a policing regime and i i would uh, like you know so i have um i work with some autistic individuals and they just find it an a, a, a a huge relief. I'm thinking of one guy in particular. He finds it a huge relief that I'm not there to fix him. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm there to just be with him and find our choruses and our refrains and to just uh, and, and and to just be in his language as much as I can. Right to be fluid and to and to create that relationship that isn't it, it isn't typically it's it, it's not constrained by the typical requirements of language right mm -hmm. and then in in that way his body can just be free to and 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 then i'm feeling more free right because if i want to rock you know and, and if i want to move the way that he moves then i get to move how you know because the, the the body right it gets constrained by language and 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 all of the rules in it right so it's a freeing for my body to be able to mirror him and you know, just uh, be be outside the, the usual constraints of language. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, that, that video. Later on, Amanda changed their name to Mel. So they were known by Mel, Mel Bags, M-E-L. Ah, okay. Um, yeah, just so you know. Uh, that happened after In My Language came out. And, and Mel, um, Mel and I were, were much in conversation and, and the... Um, there's a lot to say also about Mel's death and how that was facilitated by neurotypicality. Oh. But, but, you know, moving mm -hmm. back in time to that amazing video um, that changed the world. I mean, I think we could say that Mel's in my language really, really can be seen as a shift in the discourse around neurodiversity because millions of people watched it and became, began to become attuned to what what the um, violence of, of of normative forms of language entailed. And so for those of you who haven't seen it yet, or are just about to see it, one of the most remarkable things about Mel's video is that they, so they spend four minutes moving around their environment and then they move to the keyboard and say, now that I'm speaking your language, you think I'm a person, which is what you just related. But they also say, you know, but actually before I was, I was expressing so much more. So this language that I have now organized my body into at great cost, one might say, 
is a language that makes you think that I'm now communicating something, but you weren't able to even believe before that there was something being communicated and that's the violence of it, right? And so I can really relate to what you say about about your engagement with with autistics. Autistics have changed my life. There's no question because they've taught me about the world of perception being so much wider than that limited tunnel that that is circumscribed by neurotypicality. And and I should say here that I don't think of neurotypicality as a person. Um, nor do I think of neurotypicality as some kind of brain function. I think of neurotypicality, and I've come to this slowly over years, as a systemic operation that organizes bodies in terms of movement and, 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 and thought. So I think we're trained into neurotypicality, and, and, and some of us pass better. In, but it's been my experience that anybody surrounded by the beauty of neurodiversity, especially in the context of autism begins to move. So everybody feels more relaxed in the opportunity of what a, a gorgeous writer, Adam Wolfen, calls languaging. And, and so I just want to say one thing about, about languaging, because I think you'd find it really interesting. So Adam Wolfen, who's another um, autistic who's written a few books and, and has um, doesn't speak with his voice, Adam talks about languaging as, as all that escapes and exceeds the expression of words, but also is included in words. So he's asking people who mm. are sort of re reducing language, how could you possibly think that language does as little as you imagine? How could you possibly not hear in language all that it does in the movements, in the ticking, in the stimming, in the, in the dancing? And, um, but this is an affront for sure. And, and, you know, I lived this affront recently because we took that concept and made it the central tenet of a doctoral defense where a student didn't write a thesis, but produced the openings of languaging, um, papering over a room and inviting people, mostly, well, all of them neurodiverse, many of them autistic to come and write into the space. And we defended the space rather than a thesis. And um, it was very beautiful, uh, tricky, difficult, but it went super well. Oh. And the committee was incredibly supportive and the student received outstanding for it. So there are these tiny little openings, but they're very terrifying mm -hmm. to to um, an orthodoxy that wants to limit us to a certain idea of intelligence or a certain idea of communication, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I have a quote from Always More Than One, I think that um, will uh, condense what you just said, continue, uh, dance with, etc. So here we go. Uh, and, and I believe this is taken because I, in my, um, my university classes, I do, uh, quote you. So just to let you know, this is one of the quotes that I teach graduate level psychology students. And just to let you know, there's some dude out there called Dr. B <laughs> that uh, is quoting you, uh, in regards to teaching, uh, future psychologists. Wow. Um, what an honor. So here is one of those. Yeah. And so this is one of the quotes from that I believe that you're exploring in regards to Mel. 
Uh, it is human language in the form of exclusively human-to-human -human interaction more than anything else that seems to function as the bridge to intelligence and by consequence to offer inclusion to the realm of the neurotypical. Um, and I like how you're distinguishing uh, that the neurotypical, this isn't necessarily a brain thing. It's the way that culture and civilization codes, makes a code for what intelligence is. And that's a language code, right? It's like, Absolutely. you know, so, and that, that Deleuzian genius is there, that there's something about language. As soon as you use a word, you reduce and represent. And when you reduce and represent, you lose, there's a huge loss. There's a, there can be a huge impoverishment. And to me, I'm a, you know, I'm a somatic psychologist, right? So, and, and like the shadow of somatic psychology, one of the shadows is, is that there's a kind of unassailable truth of the felt sense. Like, you know, if I, if I feel in my body and then I name what I'm feeling, there's this sense of like, I'm, but I'm still using language. But then the, the, the irony and the paradox in the community community is, is that, wait, I'm still naming it. There's, you know what I mean? And once you name it, you reduce the actual thing that you're naming. And then, but then it's weird, right? Because then it becomes an unassailable truth and you can't challenge me about my experience because that's my experience. But we're still in language. We're still being reduced by language. I don't know. Do you have you run into a, a lot of Anglophones haven't, but there's a there's an educator by the name of Fernand Deligny, D-E-L-I-G-N-Y. I write about him a little bit in um always more than one, I believe. Um, anyway, I, I'll tell you something because it, it connects exactly to what you're saying. So Deligny was um, an educator um, who was working with uh, boys primarily in the 40s and 50s in France, boys coming out of prison or or on the edge of going to prison um, in the poorer areas, um, non-white areas of Paris. And he ended up in the mid-60s um, working with Felix Guattari at La Borde. So La Borde, the, the psychiatric environment that, that Jean-Henri and Felix Guattari led, that still exists today, but is perhaps less interesting than it was. And, and as people listening might know, La Borde was, it was a real experiment, like a real experiment in psychology, really engaging with other ways of thinking about psychosis and, and living uh, together, everybody sharing, uh, practices, a lot of theater, a lot of experimentation. Anyway, Deligny was there in the sixties, in the mid sixties, and he was critical of them. Um, because he felt that as long as we were still writing reports on patients, we were still in a hierarchy. So, so his question was very similar to what you're talking about. Like, what is, where is language here? Are we, we might be doing all this experimentation, but in the language, are we not reducing our in, environment to this kind of parsing of certain kind of strategies of sense or, or, or communication? Anyway, to make a very long story short, he ended up going to the south of France where he set up a, an environment for 30 years with autistics. 
And what he did was he convinced the hospitals to give him, to send him autistics during their summer holidays who would otherwise be sent home or, or sent, I don't know where. Um, and he talked to the, um, the locals in this area, in this kind of farmland about, um, allowing autistics to follow them, but promising that they wouldn't try to treat them. So the aim was not any kind of therapy. The aim was to just be alongside. And and they built these encampments. Um, it's a really like tent-like <clears throat> spaces where they made bread and, and so on and so on. Anyway, then, of course, the problem came or the, the challenge came that, that things began to be complicated, you know, um, and, and, and the, ten, the, the temptation was... To, to talk about the complications, to make sense of them, to, to theorize them. And Delini said, no, draw them. So what happened was over years, they made these drawings, which he ended up calling errant lines, or sometimes they're translated as, uh, as wander lines. And these were drawn in palimpsest. And so what would happen is, for example, if I might be around a child and the child had these frenetic movements, I would draw the movements. And then the next day I would draw on top of that. And I would draw on top of that on tracing paper. And over time, I would, I would find the intensities of movement and I would begin to understand, Oh, here there's a real call. Look, the water is always calling at this time of day or, or there, there seems to be something happening around the, the fire pit or whatever. And, and so there's something really beautiful about this, um, yeah, this, this commitment to how movement gives a certain kind of languaging as well. And, and the irony, of course, because there's always going to be paradoxes, that Delini was a writer. So, of course, he wrote a lot about this. So it's not that all of this was done outside of writing, but his writing is remarkably mm. untranslatable. He invents language. He, he, he writes mm. in the margins. He's not writing about so much as writing with. So I think it also what Delini is showing us is that there's a way of doing this work. And I certainly try to do it. And I think many of us try to do it where you're not trying to have the last word. You're, you're not trying to put the, you know, like to figure it out, to put the final, you know, punctuation on it. But you're trying to say, well, well, what if it, what if its shape could be like this? Or what if its shape could be like this, you know? I love it. It reminds me of uh, John Weir Perry's work. Um, so John Weir Perry, uh, are you familiar with John Weir Perry? No, tell me more. He's, uh, so John Weir Perry um, opened a clinic called Diabasis right here in River City in San Francisco area. And it was a, um, it was a clinic for psychotic patients. And John Weir Perry is a Jungian a writer in the in the Jungian tradition, so he had an archetypal approach to psychotic process, and his approach was basically like, "Hey, listen, there's something intelligent happening here. We're not going to just say that this is just madness and stop at that, and this is just crazy talk. We're going to assume that there's an intelligence here, and we're going to." We're going to witness whatever intensities are coming out of the psychotic process from a place of there's something intelligent happening. There's something that is inside the human that's trying to express some sort of primordial potency. And I'm here to hold space for it, you know, and and it was an experiment, I believe, in the 
I think it was the seventies or eighties. Um, and they actually got wonderful re- results with psychotic patients. And it makes me really sad because that paradigms like that, um, are no longer in use. I mean, there's like, basically you have, um, you know, a couple of attempts out there like the, um, but ultimately what you have in general with psychosis is a kind of chemical thwarting approach, you know, like thwart the intensities with a, with a chemical agent. Mm -hmm. Um, but like, you know, the, the old movement you see in, um, you know, for example, the Kingsley Hall experiment, um, by uh rd lang you know back in the 60s and 70s where you have this room called the rumpus room which is just such a wonderful uh image right like instead of you know like this image of being inside a mental hospital being chemically thwarted you have this rumpus room Mm -hmm. which is you know a place for psychotic patients to bring their intensities in a space of non-judgment, right? Let's just make sure everything is physically safe and so on, that you're not going to be of harm to yourself or anybody else. And then just let it rip and let's see what happens. Let's not judge. Let's just sit vigil and, and see what unfolds. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's so interesting to, to bring this to, you know, to return to this question of intensity um, to, to, to recognize that intensity is not um, legible within those simple binaries of 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 less and more, we we have a tendency to think of intensity as something that is visibly more than less, you know. But I think intensity is a rhythm. It's an it's a it's a it's a qualitative field that is really unquantifiable. For example, I want to come back to this question of of psychosis, but if I talk about my own experience, so I struggle with chronic um, and lifelong depression. My father's bipolar, um, and um, I have never been able to relate to the account of depression as slowness or as sadness. Mm -hmm. Um, Depression Mm -hmm. to me feels like a... um, an an asymmetry of rhythm. Like suddenly I'm moving, or not I, but like the world, me world is moving at a speed that is incongruous with with how the outside needs to engage me. Sometimes that incongruousness can feel slower or faster. Like that's not really, I don't experience it at all in those terms, I experience it as being off. And I have a strong sense that in another world, it might not be off. Um, But part of the violence of the world that we live in is that it does set up temporal markers for the day, for um, the month, for the year, for the lifetime, and so on. And, and, um, and, and so many, many of the people I'm around struggle with those temporal markers, uh, be, you know, that we might call productivity or usefulness or whatever we might call them. But, but there's so much shame at falling off those registers. And to be honest, I'm a hyper productive person. Like my problem isn't lack of pro- productivity. I'm super quick. 
So, so, you know, it's not about, um, anything to do with measure. It's, it's something far more qualitative. And so I wanted to say that because, um, I wanted to come back to this idea of psychosis. And I, I just wanted to give one example. I always give this example, but it's a, I think it's a beautiful one. And it's about Guattari's practice of schizoanalysis. And it's a complicated idea, schizoanalysis, but it's also a very simple idea. I think what Guattari means by schizoanalysis has nothing to do with schizophrenia per se. It has to do with what he calls the skids. So how does the cut, how does the, the, the shift occur that allows for another kind of path to reveal itself? And he gives this example and he's in the, he's, he's, he's following another psychiatrist or psychologist. I'm not sure. He's in the, the person's office. There's a, patient there and the psychologist or psychiatrist is asking the patient questions and the patient is looking out the window and not answering and and the psychologist and psych or psychiatrist is coming to some presuppositions as one does and Guattari says to the psychologist you know the patient left a long time ago and and the psychologist says what do you mean he's right here and Guattari says no he's not he's outside he's been outside this whole time and if you want to meet him, you need to go outside. And, and that's a way in which I see the skiz happening. Like, just go where it is. And if you go where it is, it's not that it will be, like, now simple. Because where, when you go with it is, where it is, you have to also go where it is, which is to say you have to shift your assumptions about what it is. And, and so it's a creative um, encounter with whatever it is. And, you know, uh, that might mean shifting your idea about what an encounter is or what a communication is or, or, or what outside means or, or what, what, what anything means really. And, uh, but if you do that, and this is Guattari's, um, approach, if you do that, then what you're actually doing is increasingly erasing yourself as, therapist. So your aim is not to centralize yourself. Your aim is to retreat because the world is really, really intelligent. And the, 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 that patient who's walking out into the world is, is in the midst of a, of a real complexity. And, and, and your, your job is, is to foster the encounter with that complexity rather than reducing it. And so, and so the techniques you might need, like in my case, I do take antidepressants that has that has shown itself to be a necessity but ironically i'm diabetic off insulin so i'm doing the one thing that you're not supposed to be able to do wow. which is be type 1 diabetic off insulin but i i actually can't wow. get off my antidepressants right it's the world is never mm. going to be as unparadoxical as we might like it to be. And I think that's part of the conversations that get denied by a certain kind of limited language around health, around wellness, around, you know, all the things that you brought up in the beginning. That's one of the uh, things I love about you, Aaron, is your capacity to articulate and have a window of tolerance and, and, and inspire a window of tolerance for paradox. Uh, I just really love that about you. <clears throat> Another uh, example came to mind um, when you were talking and uh, of uh, somebody working with a psychotic patient. This is uh, Eugene Gendlin. 
uh, one of the heroes of somatic psychology, one of the founders. And so as the lore goes, um, Jenlin was working in uh, one of his hospitals and there was a patient that was um, smearing some of their poop on the wall and just kind of writing in sort of quasi text or proto sign or something like that. And Jenlin didn't even miss a step. He put on his rubber gloves and then just started smearing with his patient and was like, okay, so what are we up to today? You know what I mean? So, which is another just incredible example of escaping the structure, escaping the norm in order to join somebody where they're at. I just think it's so brilliant. It gives me the tingles to think about it. You know, I love (laughs) getting the tingle. I bet you, you get the tingle response a lot. (laughs) I bet you, you do. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing I love the most in the world is following in in developing the technique, like just to take your example, that that person was teaching something. I mean, the the, the so called patient, they were teaching them something, and 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 the and and to not be afraid of learning, which doesn't mean you know people think that 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 some people think that if you say that it means there are no boundaries and everything's okay. It's just never that way. There are always boundaries. There's always a moment where you get tired and you're bored or you're frustrated or you're dissatisfied or you're, you know, there's, those are, those are moments, but, but we, we have to see, I think that those moments exist for both. So the, the patient that's putting the poop on the wall, he too, or she too is going to get bored at a certain point of putting poop on the wall. Like it's, it's not going to be interesting forever, you know? And, and this is, this is something I think we learn from children. I mean, I think a lot about children and how they teach us the possibility of diverging. If you watch a child play, they're not going to play the same game for eight hours. They play a game that grows a game that grows a game that grows a game that grows an appetite that grows a tiredness that grows an upsetness that grows another game and so on. And they're, they're deviating constantly. And part of, I think, our challenge as adults, if we, you know, I mean, I hope we don't become adults, but if we do become adults, is that um, <laughs> we have a kind of choreography for that. We, we want to fit that into our useful day, which I understand, you know, we want to say to the child, like, I got to get some work done. I, I got to get you to, to do these things I need you to do, like eat breakfast or or have a nap or whatever, because I really need to have my life. And, and that's okay, too. But but I think we often don't want to recognize that in doing that, we're also teaching the child that there's like a, a limited choreography of divergence that that has to be attended to. Mm. Yeah. It feels like uh, I think you're poking fun at this kind of like uh, cultural orientation to adulting. <laughs> uh, you know, like this obsession with adulting where I, I prefer your term, which is worlding. Mm. Uh, you know, if we're, if we're going to be doing some inging, which I think we're doing some inging, might as well, you know, put the crown on the verb instead of the noun. The, cr- the crown is always on the noun, right, Aaron? <laughs> the crown is on the noun and it's a good idea to put it on the ing. Right. But if it, but if it happens to be on adulting, I I don't want to really sign up. Right. Because then it limits that it makes the body docile. 
Exactly. You know, and I'd really exactly. like to kind of take the conversation in the direction of the docile body. I, I explore that. I'll be publishing my first book, aside from my dissertation, um, soon, knock on wood. Um, and and in that book, I one of the binaries that I or continuums I'm looking at is docile body versus glorious body. Uh, you use the the term the the shape of enthusiasm, which I can yes. I can feel in your discourse. It's just so vital and and lovely. But I'd like to explore this docile body mm -hmm. uh, terminology because it's like it's one way of naming what we're talking about. It's one way of naming the constraints of language. But let's maybe can we talk about the docile body a bit? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I ran into that concept first in Michel Foucault's work. Um, I'm trying to think, was it in the history of sexuality, maybe, that he talked about it? And I remember being so taken aback by it. Um, because that, you know, I haven't thought about this. You're helping me think back to it. But it, I suppose that one of the most strident um, mechanisms of neurotypicality is making the body docile. So teaching us very early to sit in chairs, to face forward, to play out a certain choreography of listening, which we all know we fake all the time. I mean, those of us who do it, you know, we know, we know how to give people the impression, those of us who pass as neurotypical, that we're listening even while we're thinking about something else or whatever. So the docile body is a, is a policed body. It's a body that is um, part of what I think Deleuze through Foucault would talk about as the control society, that a body that is organized, not a body without organs. But, 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 but what fascinates me about the docile body is that there, that the work it takes to produce it is so much, right? Bodies are not docile. So in order to produce the docile body, we have to set up these hierarchies of, um, of, of sense and sensation that reduce sense and sensation to the most common denominators. Um, and when you were talking about worlding earlier, I just have to say that I have a great friend. Um, everybody should know the work of John Lee Clark. Um, one of my favorite people in the whole wide world. And John is uh, deafblind. He's a deafblind poet. And he says to me often, Aaron, what, what else could there be other than worlding? And it's really interesting to me because as a deafblind poet, he often can't be made docile. <laughs> Because he doesn't fit into those communities of sense that would police his body. Because they're primarily hearing and seeing communities. You know, we're framed by mm. what John would call distantism, by the way in which we are taken, um, we are organized to perform in the establishing shots of existence. So I think the docile body is what, what John would call a, a, a distantist body, a body that is appraised at a distance, that is organized at a distance. Mm. And by distance, John doesn't just mean like in, in a far reach, but a body that is performing itself for the other, you know, and you can imagine that 
that that, you know, how much of that performance is inbred in whiteness and is constructed through a kind of visual, um, visual centric operation. Yeah, nice. And that, uh, I think it continues the conversation about contact. And, and my hypothesis is that one of the reasons why distantism is there, it's power dynamics and control dynamics, yes, but it's also... I think it's a it's it's a horror and 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 a terror of actual contact. Yes. 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 The intensities of of contact. I mean there's it's it's a multifaceted thing but like just to continue that discussion about well contact is intense so like you know yeah. we've been taught to domesticate ourselves and create docile docile bodies so that the intensity is diminished. Yeah. It's I, when you raised it earlier. I was thinking of something that's very close to me, which is um, sickness. So I've been taking uh, care or being alongside somebody who's been very ill, and uh, it's not the first time in my life that I have been in this position. But what I've been thinking about a lot in this case is how uh, he invites the care. So there's no fear of contact. Um, and because there's no fear of it, the care is so easy. It's fun. We laugh a lot. Mm. We can spend 12 hours in an emergency room, you know, two days before Christmas and be mm. laughing the whole time. Um, there's a there's a way in which that we can really share in the process. There's no defensiveness on his part. And, the, and so that also means that there's no fear on my part to be present in ways that might otherwise elicit fear. And so I've been thinking a lot about that. I, I've been thinking about it as well. Um, my father had a stroke two weeks ago. So another case, I've been in, I've been a lot in the hospital these last months and, wow. you know, my father mm -hmm. was like I mentioned bipolar and, and I say was because strangely when he hit dementia about a decade ago, his bipolarity left. And he, yeah, it's really weird. He became okay with the world or the world became okay with him. And then um, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, he had a stroke and was further what one might call diminished cognitively. So um, I don't know for sure that he knows who I am, but he certainly, his body knows who I am. And in the times that I've spent with him since the stroke, we've had a lot of fun. I read him stories and like he did to me when I was a child, he loves the stories. He's um, aware for, for sure of what I'm reading him, mostly about animals. Um, he's aware and, 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 and uh, enchanted, enthusiastic about my presence in a way that I don't think he ever could be in the past. Not, I suppose because he didn't love me, but because the world was just a really hard place for him to negotiate. And so strangely, hmm. this period in his life has allowed those barriers to contact to, to fall off. And I've been thinking a lot about how good it feels to be in contact and how unimportant it is for me to be known as me. It doesn't really matter to me whether he knows difference between me and the nurse or whatever it doesn't matter because 
it wasn't really contact isn't about that's what I was trying to get at at the beginning. It's not about me. And I don't mean that like I don't mean that in a in a flighty way. Contact produces a thirdness. It produces a relation and the relation mm. is not reducible to me or my dad. It's a it's a little world that that is crafted that has its own little sparks and its own potential and its own intensity and that intensity can also be sadness. Do you know like I can leave my dad mm. like I did, you know, last week and think maybe this was our last time together. But I certainly don't feel like this wasn't a time together. Do you see what I mean? Like I'm not I'm not mourning some old father. Mm -mm. I love this new father. He's he seems to really enjoy life. And and so the intensity yeah. the intensity is not good or bad. It's intensity. It's it's quality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, there's uh, there's this inclination in a lot of families um, with uh, that have folks, the elders that have neurodegenerative disorders, where there's a kind of um, attempted coercion, a kind of forcefulness to try to get the get the person back into consensus reality. Like if if the if the person has Alzheimer's, for example, and they're seeing 50 elvises or something like that and they're just like they're they're, they're not tracking sense the way the way that we that that neurotypicals or whatever consensus reality is tracked so there can be this consensus or this um coercion towards hey you, you need to come back into consensus reality so that i can feel a little bit more comfortable it makes it about me right rather than just why, why not? Like the world of 50 Elvises. I mean, that sounds pretty cool. Like, I mean, yeah. if we're yeah. it's like, why not develop the imaginative capacity to enter into their world and just like be in the world of 50 Elvises? I mean, I mean, why oh, exactly. the heck not? So, exactly. And that's, you know, coming back to the docile body, you know, what I'm experiencing with my father is not a docile body. Interestingly, I mean, I think part of, you know, be a long conversation about bipolarity and my father's own history and so on. But part of the horror of living in a, in a world that 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 is policed by neurotypicality is the anxiety and and work, daily work of trying to fit yourself into it and and all the fear that comes with that. And in my dad's case, a lot of it, I think, was in my in his relation to me was his fear that I couldn't survive it, that I, too, would be broken by it. And um, and in 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 the and so contact was something that was uh, withhold, withheld for the most part. Um, my body um, I'm probably his child who's most similar to him. And, and my body, I think, raised, um, yeah, terrors for him. And, and for good reason. I went through some mm. remarkably difficult times where it wasn't clear that I would survive. Mm. And I never take survival or life for granted, ever. I don't think life is easy. And so I'm always like really proud of myself at the end of the day that I got through the day. I, I recognize days as, as practices, you know, but, but what you're talking about is in the kind of neurodegenerative frame is really important. I think I was, I was doing these, these, this homework with my dad because he's, you know, he's being followed by occupational therapists and so on. He's lost most language. And strangely, he's French is my mother tongue and he's, 
he's as conversant in French as in English. So he's lost exactly the same amount of language in both languages, which I'm finding really fascinating. Um, and um, so he has a lot of trouble naming things, but it's clear that he knows what they are. If I, if I ask him to gesture, he knows what they are, but he doesn't know things like, mm, I don't know that he would know, you know, dates or, you know, family members, certainly not partners of family members or, you know, there's, but he could tell you what a what a what a knife is for or what a bowl is for that kind of thing but anyway one of the exam like one of the, the 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 tests that he's supposed to do has to do with um qualities interestingly so you know you have a, a page and it says biggest and uh then it has house bush car and and on that one he said bush and i thought maybe i mean a bush could be bigger than a house right like it depends on the house like the the tests are kind of tricky right because they presume <laughs> this kind of neurotypical idea so anyway so so there was this great moment i was with my dad and we went for a little walk and you know my dad was an extraordinary athlete um you know olympic level athlete uh downhill skier um and and uh with uh and compulsive exerciser with the the dementia, all of that's fallen away. You know, he, it's just really interesting. Anyway, we're walking and it's snowy, you know, we're in the north and um, we sit in the kitchen and my father says to me, not in so exactly these words because sentences are hard, but he says to me when it's no longer white, it's green. And he repeats that three times. And I say to him, you're right. It, it is green when it's no longer white. That's right. And he's speaking to me in French, as we always speak in French. And then he says, you know, a bit later, he says to me, when it's green, there are lots of people. And he lives on a farm. And I said to him, you're right. There are lots of people. There's the rocks and there's the insects and there's the trees and um, and there's the wind. And, and he smiles and he laughs and he says, yeah, there are lots of people. And I think, isn't that interesting? Because it sounds like something I'd write. Right. And so like from a from a, a a neurotypical perspective, we'd say, come on, you know, those aren't people. But of course, they're people. Why wouldn't they be people? Right. And so so there's something that that I'd want to also challenge, you know, in that kind of neurotypical environment. I'd have to say my dad got philosophically more interesting, you know, because he wasn't <laughs> afraid of thinking in those terms. Right. Uh huh. Uh huh. That's lovely. You know, I'm I'm thinking about some of the ancient uh, <clears throat> uh, alchemical symbolism about whiteness. Um, that whiteness in the ancient alchemical mind is equated with a type of innocence, a, namely a type of unconscious innocence. Um, Barry Spector wrote this amazing book about America, and he what he asserts there is is that the founding mythology of America is one of innocence, the myth of American innocence, <laughs> and so that there's this equation archetypally between white and unconscious innocence. Mm -hmm. And James Hillman has this wonderful way of taking innocence to task. He, mm -hmm. and he, he, in the alchemical paradigm, white transmutes into yellow. I, in a way, I like green uh, <laughs> uh, better, uh, but, but actually better. It's just different, right? More is different. Mm -hmm. But in the alchemical model, um, white, the unconscious innocence, gets transmuted 
into yellow, which is called the rottening, mm -hmm. where the unconscious innocence rottens mm -hmm. and putrefies and and basically dies so that then the greenery can come out because that's the cycle of nature right but you know it, innocence can be so toxic you know it can be so you know kind of like coercion over other people to get other people into our paradigm or our way of thinking and essentially making docile bodies in the image of what we think a body should do or whatever mm -hmm. but then often there's this element of positing innocence like well i'm i'm innocent you know like and mm -hmm. and what some of these authors are saying right is that that's the that's the core myth is that there's an mm -hmm. unconscious innocence and that that is all about making humans separate and better and more grandiose and more superior than people that speak another language for example or have a different color of skin or whatever yeah. it is and then that what they're saying right is that that white then needs to be rottened and taken somewhere else whether it's the yellow or the green no it's very interesting what you say and it brings me back to something i learned um a story i heard fred moten tell fred moten a beautiful poet african-american theorist um amazing thinker. And um, I've written about this in Four Pragmatics of the Useless, and it's an account of a law. And I, I might be getting the year wrong, but I believe it's 1734, and I believe it's in um, Pennsylvania. And the law stated that two or more Black men couldn't congregate at the park on Sundays. And, and like Fred, what really fascinates me is this or more. Right. Two or more black men can't congregate. So what is in the or more? Like, what is the threat of the or more? What is blackness doing in the or more that this so-called innocence of whiteness never has to address? Because there is never an or more of whiteness. Whiteness is, is like a, you know, a, 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 an, an all covering status, whereas the or more of blackness is the big threat. And the, and the or more of blackness, I think, is the unwieldy indecipherability of relation. It is the impossibility of that has come through histories of, of violence and subjugation that has um produced alternatives to the very to the very limited ideas of neurotypicality and docility um and so many black authors have talked about this in i think the most interesting ways about what happens when you realize that ontology the study of being excludes you what happens is well you could you could wish to be part of it and there's certainly some of that of course, that happens in all excluded fields, you know, in, in that there's a kind of desire to fit in, to be, to be or become white in the larger sense of the word. It doesn't work. We know that it doesn't work. You know, if you're driving a car while black, no matter how well you performed whiteness in other contexts, you're still going to be black in that car. Right. So it, but, but the or more than or the or moreness, the more than one that I'm trying to think about is, I think, 
um, the, the, our biggest threat. Because if we can't center ourselves as white-skinned people, if if we if we practice um, disavowing that tendency, um, if we are curious about the sidelines that that engages, the accompaniments, the the besideness, the alongsideness that is an alternative to the centering. Another kind of world emerges, and that world is full of contact. So, you know, if we were to go back to where contact is actually very um, emphasized, we might talk about First Nations and the ways in which the foregrounding of relation is part of cultures and First Nations environments that people will say, these are my relations. I come to the world through my relations, not through myself, right? Or, and I hear mm -hmm. this often also mm -hmm. in black communities. I come, I come to this world through, through my ancestors. Now, ancestors, the, the vocabulary of ancestors can become um, also gentrified. Like we got I think we got to be careful that, that we live in the world in this world. But, but I think that, that any kind of question of docility of, of neurotypicality has to be associated with the, the rottenness of a whiteness, which again is a systemic problem. It's not interesting for white people to make it about us. If we make it about, like, if I make it about me, I'm right back there. Right. Mm. So it's not like any mm. white person listening is, is not about <laughs> you <laughs> in, in your individuality. Mm. It's about the propulsion of this docility and how all the ways in which mm. we are complicit in managing its continuance, which we are every time, every time you and you or I stand in a classroom and evaluate a work, we're complicit. You know, we are. Of course we are, right? Yeah. There's a lot there. I can go in so many different directions with it. I'm thinking about two directions. Hopefully I can cover both or explore both. One direction is I just saw a, a documentary about Navalny. Uh, Navalny is this guy that Putin murdered. And so I'm thinking to myself, you know, just like I'm thinking about the or more portion. So even though we got two white dudes, yes. you know, like so here's Putin is like this image of, you know, innocence on high, you know, and and just lording it over. And then you have Navalny, who is essentially carrying a, 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 a seed of rot. Yes. For the whiteness. And so even though he's, you know, he's white, he's carrying the yellow or, you know, if we think about, you know, yellow being an image for the or more, but black yes. also being an image for the or more. Yes. And then what happens when he brings that he brings people that gather around trying to, you know, rot in the excessive innocence and then he gets taken down. He gets essentially murdered through poisoning. Yes, you know, oh, that's so. such a good example because it really highlights that the threat is in the qualitative realm, right? The threat is is the the mm. Navalny yellowness is what you can't quite put your finger on, but that propulses an energy in the world, the quality of life in the world that believes there could be another way and, and can believe that knowing that Navalny is also completely fallible. Navalny is not perfect. 
He's also opted for some, he's made decisions that some people find are too far on the right. There's lots of stuff that's also paradoxical about Navalny. So we're not trying to make a God. We're not trying to make a hero. We're trying to show that there's this seed that Navalny could become. And Navalny said very clearly, if I'm killed, it's because we were doing something. He, he wrote this. Right. Yeah. So he knew yeah. he knew that he knew when he went back to Russia that he probably would be killed. But he 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 wanted, I think, the more than to do its work. And if he stayed in Germany, it couldn't do its work. And so, you know, he he sacrificed himself. And, you know, in a long history of people sacrificing themselves and whatever, that would be another conversation to have. I mean, I'm not, you know prepared for or or don't really know how to think about but i think your example is is amazing yeah yeah the other direction um i was thinking about is um what i've been calling uh, just general human domestication syndrome that you know and in in pragmatics i do believe that you mentioned uh france fan and i mean i'm i'm a i'm an english i i, I speak english sorry it's fanon it's right? totally Fanon. good. Fanon. <clears throat> Fanon. You mentioned <laughs> Fanon uh, in, in in the book, and he's uh, one of my heroes, and is part of my book because actually, weirdly enough, you you know, he was a psychiatrist and and a neurobiologist. Yes. And and back in just like I guess it was the fifties or something like that, he named. Um, one of the central regions in the brain that I talk about that is central to affect, Aaron, uh, central to affect, the periaqueductal gray, um, and all those affective intensities, not all of them, but there's a nuclear generator in the core of our brain <clears throat> called the periaqueductal gray that generates, it's like a nuclear generator generating all the big affects, right? Like, you know, the opioids the oxytocins the you know the lust system the care system the um the rage system and you know and he basically named the central gray area as the place where he, he didn't use this language at the time but it's been taken in this direction wh where the ra racialized body um is is implicated in thwarting those uh those intensities in the core of the brain through and, and because you know black bodies have been seen and equated by uh by a white reality as as animal as a more than that's other yeah and and so therefore it needs to be domesticated yeah and then so then we have this image of a domesticated body now and i think this is really powerful that he could name you know, in the fifties or whatever, the, the periaqueductal gray is being central to that. But also the periaqueductal gray is where the rubber hits the road in terms of trauma. So you, you've seen this thing, um, where animals like prey animals, they get, um, when they, when a predator comes after them and they go into that death feigning response, the, the collapsed immobility where they faint and, you know, basically it's a last ditch effort at survival where just like this. And then if, you know, like another animal comes in to distract the predator and that uh, and the prey animal um, 
is saved and it doesn't get eaten or whatever, it'll go through an intense booting up process. You've seen this, right? Where, where an animal, it, it just like shakes its body and, and goes through all this quivering and trembling and stuff like that and essentially resets. Okay. And then, then just runs off into the wilderness, hopefully. Right. <laughs> um, what they what the neurobiologist has found is, is that that, sequence that booting up sequence lives in the periaqueductal gray now the big problem as as far as i see it is is that that natural intensity has been thwarted by the human domestication syndrome like no let, let's let's thwart the thing in nature that's a primordial intensity mm-hmm. okay that is our birthright and because it's so, it looks mad. It looks crazy. It's like, you know, I'll, I'll go to a business meeting or something like that where I feel really uncomfortable and I want to get out of that meeting and just go, ah, you know, just get yeah. that out of my body. Yeah. But it looks crazy, right? So I think that this um, natural animal impulse has been thwarted under this domestication and docility yeah. vector in, in civilization. I love that. That's really interesting. Um, I've also been very um, interested in Fanon's work, particularly for me. Um, oh, wait, you know, one of the areas for me that's particularly interesting is that he and Gotari were schooled by the same person, uh, Tosquel. So, you know, there's a history um, of a relationship between Gotari and Fanon, which has been difficult to parse you know some people have tried there isn't much there a few letters um but it helps me understand uh Fanon's direction because I know Gotari so well particularly in relation to what they learned from Tosquel which was the angle of what was called institutional psychiatry and or institutional psychotherapy and the idea that the institutions themselves need to be um you know, put under the therapeutic gaze so that so that you couldn't engage with people without thinking about the worlds in which they through which they emerge and the environments that we call their um, therapeutic environments. And and so, you know, while my own tendency is more impatient toward the institution, um, it's hard for me to give the institution any benefit of the doubt. I do recognize that institutions produce bodies and they produce certain kinds of bodies. I mean, I've been, like I mentioned before, I've been in psychiatric institutions. I know how they produced bodies. And I know, you know, I can say from my own experience um, that, uh, you know, what saved me probably from a very normative environment was the social standing of my person. So, you know, when I was in a psychiatric environment at one point was deemed incapable of thought or language, I, I Mm. had stopped speaking. Um, it was where I came from that got me out of there, right? It was the, it was my whiteness. It was the impossibility of believing that a child of, of scholars could be unintelligent. Had I not been white, had I not mm. been um, middle class, um, I might have um, gone down another kind of road. And certainly a lot of the people who were incarcerated in that 
institution with me did not survive. And so I think a lot about how institutions produce bodies and and enforce the docility. Mm-hmm. For for decades, I I didn't speak about that um, because I thought people would think I was mad. And it was mm-hmm. uh, years later, years. I mean, a decade after writing about neurodiversity, that some neurodiverse folks said to me, "Aaron, why don't you ever talk about your own neurodiversity?" And I said, "My own neurodiversity." <laughs> <laughs> and I honestly hadn't thought about it. Um, and, and, and that's interesting also about how bodies are made docile and, and domesticated. I, I, and so I, I don't, I, what I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's, it's a pernicious environment that captures us even when we think we understand what it's doing. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the, um, reset you're talking about would terrify a person like me because I've been there. I've been called mad, right? I've been, I've been uh-huh. told that there was no future for me I, and from a young age, mm-hmm. right? And, and now you look at me and mm-hmm. you probably say, oh, she doesn't look mad at all. Like she's, she's managing just fine. But I, and I am, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. But I've, I've, I've been able to be okay because I've gr- grown worlds around me and and connected to worlds that have allowed for neurodiversity that have that have backgrounded those terrible meetings you're talking about <laughs> that have made another way mm. possible and so all of my life is spent making those ways possible but i just want to give one example just really it's it's from um it's an example that people can find online it's from my friend uh bio akamalafe who's an other amazing poet and 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 writer and bio um has a young son kia who's um autistic and when uh bio and i first met Bio um, told me this story about Kia um, in a shopping center. Bio was there. And well, I should say that very early in our meeting, Bio said to me, do you think I'm autistic? And I was like, Bio, of course you're autistic. I mean, how could that even be a question? And we left. And then we didn't continue that conversation. A bit later, um, he told me about Kia in the in the shopping center. And Kia had, Kia had, um, was having a so-called tantrum. So his body was disorganizing, right? His body was was resetting, we could say, in your vocabulary. And it was a problem, right? This was a public space. Bio desperately wanted his son to stop. This is Bio telling me this. He said to me, Aaron, I just, yeah, yeah. I just wanted him to stand up. Mm. I just wanted him. He's a little black boy, mm. right? Like we, we don't want mm. our black boys yeah. on the ground, you know? And, and, yeah. um, mm. and Bio's partner, his wife, um, got on the ground with Kia. <laughs> and, and wow. Bio, he had tears when he told me this story. And I said to him, Bio, it totally makes sense to me as a grown ass black man that you didn't get on the ground. Right. Like, you know, this, these are not simple procedures. Yes. Yes. That Mm -hmm. was the thing to do. Absolutely. But Mm -hmm. not all of us can get on the ground and not Mm -hmm. all of us can survive getting on the ground. 
And not all of us will survive those tantrums. I mean, that little boy was little, so he was okay. But that same boy at 20, mm -hmm. maybe not. Mm -mm. And that's the reality of blackness and autism, right? So, so mm -hmm. I think that, that, that this question of docility is also a racialized question. You know, and it's also a neurotypical question in the sense of what are the costs? Yeah, I'm afraid of that quote unquote mad body because I'm afraid of being locked up, but chances are I'll survive it. Right? But will an autistic who doesn't speak survive it? Mm, not so lucky. I don't think so. Do you know? And and so that's that's you know, yeah. that's the pain of it. Right? Mm. That's the horror of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I can definitely relate and I appreciate you going public with your uh your era of madness. Um if we can call it that, can we call it that? Sure. Uh, I had in my sure, yeah. I in my call it whatever. <laughs> I love your uh you know, kind of mobility with language. Yeah, I had an era of madness in my in my twenties as well, and I was um institutionalized for a bit and it's really uh powerful to think about you know the the white privilege you know that that goes behind being able to make it out of institutions once you're in there there's like there's more mobility baked into the system for white appearing folks right and then to just to just name that to just name that part of the reason why we're here having that this discussion is because is because we're white that we made it out of the institutions and i'm i'm glad that i had my encounter with madness like i'm like it's part of who i am it's part of my mobility now to meet people in those states and you know and i can do that now because i've been dismembered and ripped apart in that way and 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 I get to and I get to serve from that place and that's one of the most powerful things I can do with having the mobility that I have you know um so I really appreciate you um naming that and going public with it uh, thank you thank you for that um <clears throat> I want I was thinking about um this amazing writer who you've quoted um uh by the name of jose gill yes uh who wrote an extraordinary book called metamorphoses of the body it's just an extraordinary book isn't it i love it i love it yes oh it is just extraordinary i got the tingle response all over my body again you know I bang on for probably 50, between 50 and 60 pages in my, in my book that I'm writing about metamorphoses, um, which I just find to be so brilliant. And so there, there's a radical, uh, let's, maybe I'll start with an image. <clears throat> and I don't know where the connective is yet. I mean, the connective tissue is a mystery sometimes, but it's all in there, right? It's all in the cauldron. We'll see where the connectives are, but I'm just going to kind of throw this out there and see where it brings us, okay? Because he talks a lot about ancient justice systems, okay? And that ancient justice systems um, were, were, A, very imaginative and flexible, and B, 
might have carried the seed of the state formation. And there's a C, D, and E as well, but um, but we won't go there for now. But one of the images that he brings is uh, is uh, Inuit singing duels as a uh, as a form of imaginative justice, where which I just think is so wonderful, right? You, 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 your intention is to make the the viewer laugh. Um, and, and and to put on a public show, and one of the intentions, of course, is justice um, uh, from a collective perspective. But it's just such a uh, such an imaginative way of doing it. So I'm wondering if you could comment on the two elements: the ima- imaginative element of a sort of ancient tribal justice formations, and then the somewhat more risque thing that Gill brings forward, which is, is that the seed of the state formation might've been in there. Gosh, you know, um, so Jose is a friend. I haven't seen him in some years, but such a beautiful thinker and really important thinker for me, because when I started writing about movement, um, there was so little work on movement and his is emblematic mm. of, you know, I mean, I, 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 yeah. I piggybacked on that work. Um, but I haven't read the book in quite a long time. It was very central to politics of touch. So I'm, I'm, I'm finding it's, it's resonances again in your, in your talk. Um, it's, if I'm not mistaken, Perhaps it might be interesting to bring his concept of exfoliation into these two questions. So I'm, I'm trying to remember the way exfoliation worked. And I think what, what, what um, Jose was trying to talk about was um, how a body is not, I mean, it's what we've been talking about so far, that a body, that the idea of a body as an envelope is a product of a certain discourse that is the the making docile or the domestication of the body and the production of whiteness. Um, it is the 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 body that that is called in in philosophy, you know, through Hegel, for example, the the modern subject, right? So the modern subject has to be organizable. You, you know, you have to be able to put the head on it. You know, to go back to Hobbes. You know, like we have all these male philosophers who have given us the shape of that body and we know the shape of that body is not female you know it's not black you know it's a, it's a white male body it's a it's an abstract body in the sense that it has no name it's abstract in in the sense that it's um you know it's a whitewashed figure let's put it that way and um and what Jose Gil mm. is trying to do is is to to demonstrate, I think, in these practices that the body historically just doesn't function like that at all. That a body is is the trace mm. of exfoliation in movement. It is what it leaves behind um, in the sense of, of the, the worlds it produces and is produced by. It's a co-composing force. And, and so it is a kind of temporal medium and for those of us who embody that particular form that one calls too quickly the human, um, I often think that 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 what what we connect to is a certain kind of predictable 
molecularity. Like we recognize a certain durational field and that's, you know, it's easier for me to see that field in a fellow human than it is in a, in a, an entity that moves at a different speed, like a rock. Right. So, so there's a kind of recognition that plays out because we're, we're, we are organized by durations in that way. Right. And, and, and it would make sense that we would um, be responsive to what moves in the rhythms that we're familiar with. Um, I mean, I, I don't mean by that good. I just mean that it makes sense. And, and, and so going back then to what you were saying, I think it's really interesting to think about Jose Gilles' work as, as, um, allowing us to go into the pragmatics or what I've called speculative pragmatism. So rather than going into a general philosophy, rather than going into a general theory that in all cases this happens, which is one of the ways in which colonialism asserts itself to say, well, let's take this example of Inuit um, voice, for example, or let's take this example of this very singular ritual in Martinique or in Mozambique or wherever he's writing from and and let's look at how it produces an environment for justice. And But also, let's not assume that what we understand by justice is what we might understand by justice today. Like, let's look at what the conditions of justice are. So I would tend to say that when he finds the seeds of the state, he's also not necessarily talking about the nation state. You know, he's trying to think about the growth of, of systems that are systems of... Um, of, of potential accumulation. Um, like, and, and what I mean by that is, uh, you know, yeah, what yeah. are the systems, if you think about, for example, um, agriculture, and you think, well, there's a system of, of accumulation that allows you to be in the, in the environment of trade and, and barter. You know, you grow corn and you give your corn and you mm -hmm. get milk or whatever. And, and a lot of the theorists of the nation state have marked this shift where, where um, scarcity begins to play into it rather than abundance. So when, for example, you put your mm. corn away and your corn becomes um, um, a kind of speculative in the other sense um, uh, market for future investment. So now you have extra corn, but you're not trading it anymore because you want it to become your your um, your marker of value, you know, in terms of capital. And so then you move away from from these uh, these economies that are emergent and and generative, um, complicated, and you know, in you know, it, it take place also in terms of war and weapons. I mean, I don't mean that it was all great, but 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 in an economy of abundance, toward an economy of scarcity, where now the nation state produces docile mm -hmm. bodies in a very particular way. Um, in the way you were talking about it. So yeah. then in that kind of state formation um, that has the capitalism um, produces, we have to make people scared. Like the biggest thing that maybe my, my life on this earth has had to contend with is this absolute lie of scarcity. You know, that's the thing that we're constantly mm -hmm. faced with, that there's not mm -hmm. enough, which is just mm -hmm. so untrue right and yet we believe it and that's how, why we compete with each other and to come back full circle perhaps that's also perhaps why we don't shiver and shake like the animal but rather tend to hold on to the trauma 
it's a it's you know i'm speaking ah, too quickly interesting yeah yeah you know, because yeah. it's also yeah. a, a no, I like it. scarcity you know like like this is my yeah life. yeah i like this it it's my like hurt it. you can't yeah, have yeah. it yeah know? yeah 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 they i the, and then hence the sort of traumatophilia you know the kind of like the 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 politics of trauma discourse right this is mine there's like social currency involved in it. It's complicated that that whole bit, but I I really like that direction that you were bringing it in there. Yeah, and that and how deep and this this goes back to kind of uh, I suppose Nietzsche uh, and this whole idea of um, that there's this infinite debt to pay. Um, you know where. I mean, because in the ancient indigenous mind, there was always this sense of, okay, there's abundance, there's always surplus, and we need to figure out intelligent means and meaningful means to kind of make burnt offerings because because the whole idea is that surplus is always uh, coming on in, and it's the surplus that messes us up. Exactly. exactly. Now it's scarcity that's messing us up, but it's really our relationship with surplus, isn't it? No, exactly. And, you know, it reminds me of this beautiful exchange, terrifying exchange, shortly after the Rwandan massacres, um, where there's a UN person who goes, he's in Rwanda, and he's says to this person, a local person, I'm not sure who they were. He says, um, you know, um, we're here to help you. You know, we're setting up these therapeutic interventions. You know, how can we assist you? And this person says, it's so weird what you do. You sequester people to talk about their pain. What we do is we explode our pain we go into the center we make a ritual we share in the pain and then it belongs to all of us and we can carry it when it belongs to all of us and and so this kind of individualization of pain um particularly today i mean particularly mm. every time you know i'm not saying that there wasn't pain in the past of course but we have a lot of anxious bodies in the world right now we see it in our classrooms i think we see it in our children um these part i think of the anxiety is the horror of carrying it alone and one of the things that i mm. notice with uh collaborators and students we talk about this a lot we we all notice that that ironically in our hardest moments, the moments of acute depression or anxiety or suicidal ideation, we are most emphatically in a vocabulary of me. And, and mm. we try to explore that not in a, like we shouldn't, I mean, we're already struggling. It's not helpful, but to realize, God, those are the m- moments where we most need a kind of relational field and and yet because of the discourses that we grow into the shame of those moments reduces them to an impoverished and sort of violently incapacitating sense of of ourselves you know and we self-center in those moments and often argue that our and i know this from myself argue that our presence in the world has no value 
because we have no value. Mm. Me has no value. Um, and I don't have a way out of this. Mm. I know this very, very intimately. Um, I, but I think it mm. is a product, as you say, of of this incredibly impoverished idea of surplus. My partner, Brian Misumi, has a beautiful concept of surplus value of life. And what he means by surplus value of life is really the intensity we were talking about before. It's what can't be quantified. It's it's that that extraordinary spark that is there also in the darkest moments or can be there also in the darkest moments. Cool. Well, I, I'm hoping maybe, maybe you can orchestrate a meeting of the Bryans. <laughs> any possibility you of can course. orchestrate? Of course, of course, of course. You know, that's, <laughs> that, that's... that would be super fun. <laughs> uh, I would absolutely love that. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so, and I also appreciate that you use the term uh, sequestered, <clears throat> sequestered. Um, which is actually, believe it or not, the same term that's used in molecular biology for coiled up DNA that's that's inaccessible. Oh. Uh, and and so that that's like epigenetic discourse, which is intergenerational trauma and so on. Um, but I was thinking while you were talking, you know, I was thinking about, you know, collective grieving rituals. And how powerful collective grieving rituals are where where grief becomes a, a type of a feast. That's my experience of collective grieving rituals where grieving isn't like sequestered into like the cell of the self. You know what I mean? Yes. It becomes a type of published public nourishment. Yes. And we're taught that like grief is something to be sequestered, something to be cordoned off, yes. you know, but. But what about thinking about it as a type of nu collective nutrition? Yes. You know, like, and, and not, and, and not only that, what about comedy too? Mm -hmm. Because comedy gets left out. A lot of this healing stuff, Aaron, I'm sure you've, you've seen this, like, you know, really well-intentioned people that are doing amazing advocacy work and really amazing trauma resolution work and really amazing justice work and all of that and and it makes sense why it, it it would have a tendency to plummet into uh humorlessness because it's not a funny thing but like but like comedy is essential and that's one of the things i love about gil jose i guess is his name jose i got it wrong is is that he he studies mime and the and the art of comedy and expression that it isn't just about you, you know, advocacy and the warrior archetype, it's about finding a way to, to make meaning with the tragedy as well in that way. Yeah, because when we laugh, we aren't I. That's the thing. The laughing takes us with it, right? I mean, it it boils us over. It's an, it's an analogous activity to that shaking you were talking about before, you know, especially when we go into the paroxysms of laughter where we're saying, stop, stop, my face hurts, I can't, my stomach hurts, stop, you know, and the laughing, yeah, it erupts, you know, and I think this, this takes us back to the exfoliation that Jose is trying to think through. You know, we often hear, I often hear from um, Indigenous writing about the sense of humor you know, sense of humor doesn't believe, it doesn't mean that life is easy. Um, and this is something also that I often think about, you know, Spinoza 
Spinoza, who, you know, wrote in, you know, several centuries ago, talked about joy. Joy has nothing to do with happiness. People really misunderstand affect. People think affect is good. Affect's not good. Affect is just affect, you know, and joy, joy is, 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 is really the more than in, in Spinoza. It is the quality that cannot be quantified. It is, it is the, it is what escapes and what erupts and what enthuses, enthuses, you know, and when I, when I was talking, when I was writing about the shape of enthusiasm in Always More Than One, I actually had an example that I didn't write about, but I can tell you it was a very beautiful and very moving example, encounter. I had been at a conference called Otcom and it was, um, Otcom is a conference organized for and by autistics. And so it doesn't welcome folks who are not autistic. And I was really fortunate to be invited. Partly I was invited because they wanted to know why contemporary dance dancers steal their movement. And they wanted me to talk about dance. And, um, and it, you know, it led to lots of ongoing collaborations, but it was a life-changing moment for me in, in many, many ways. I encountered amazing people. I found that there were ways of being listened to that I had never imagined, for example, with lots of movement and noise in the room. Um, I found that um, I felt comfortable. And it was the beginning of realizing how much I needed to be in, in neurodiverse environments. And... Um, anyway, after we left the conference, um, a person I'd gotten to know a bit at the conference who I thought was amazing, an autistic who was also, um, quote unquote, non-speaking. We were at the airport together with his stepmom and my partner and I, and um, he um, had that reaction that people call a meltdown and which i mean if 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 meltdown didn't mean something negative i would say yeah it's a meltdown or an explosion or a or a shape of enthusiasm he ended up on the floor and he um was there you know in distress um for about 45 minutes and and in that in that uh, environment of the airport and we all know airports are unsafe um we circled him. We just stood in a circle. We didn't really do anything more than protect him in that space and keep other people away. And, and, and we, I think intuitively, all three of us understood that he was doing what we were feeling. Like his body was expressing the sadness mm -hmm. of leaving each other, of the intensity of those days we'd spent together, the horror of going back, you know, and and that that actually our bodies were deeply impoverished for not being able to do that. They were far too domesticated, mm -hmm. far too docile to be able to do that. And when 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 he when he was able then to come back and to type, or to you know use the letterboard, he apologized. And and we said no no it's it's we who should really apologize for having lost this ability. Mm -hmm. You know. Um, and, but of course, I'm, you know, some people would say, well, Aaron, you're idealizing. I'm not idealizing. I understand the horror of it too. Of course, of course, I understand what this means mm -hmm. for his um, exclusion from everyday practices in the world and all the ways that he's going to be seen to be um, stupid, in incapable, and all of those awful things that happen. But I do believe that he connects to something like, like Kea, like Bio's son connects to something that we should be also like really respectful of, you know? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, thank you for that. I'm thinking about this um, this famous quote um, from Spinoza, which it, well, it's a famous question, right? You know, what can a body do? Mm-hmm. You know, and I I like to think that that's at the core of this boundless body podcast like that that question what can a body do it kind of unites us as a as a community that's inspired by the writings of Deleuze and Guattari you know uh that, like the, to 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 have to have the question be the motto like what can our bodies do together mm-hmm. our bodies can grieve together our bodies can express intensities like what you just expressed mm-hmm. you know um and and to really just have that be you know, the, the simple and penetratingly complex question, you know, what can our bodies do together? Yeah. You know, and, yeah. And, and 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 our body is one of the things that they can uh No, keep going, keep going. Go ahead. Go ahead. But also, I want you to go. Also, um, where is that body? You know, like, let's not assume we know where it is, where it sits, how it looks, where it does its work. Like, like the two mm-hmm. or more men in the park, where is the or more, you know? And that's in the boundlessness. Mm-hmm. That's also so important. You know, mm-hmm. if you try to heal me, I remember in analysis, I became a, I'm a, I became a, an, a psychoanalyst through a teaching analysis because I was in psychoanalysis for so long. And in the analysis, the, <laughs> the, uh, the, my, me saying to my therapist, when will I be okay? When will I be healthy? And, and she very, very, um, wisely saying, Aaron, there is no, there's no time that this is going to happen. It's never, it's not like that. You know, there isn't this place where your body is healed. It doesn't exist. You know, it's just going to be, you know, do you have enough, uh, is there enough capacity for creative practice for there to be a body that is, that is, um, uh, yeah, differing from itself, you know, and uh, yeah, mm-hmm. so, but I interrupted you, yeah. you were going to say something more. Well, uh, it's good. It's, uh, you know, lines of flight, lines of flight. Let's, uh, let's escape being trapped by where we think we might be going. Right. So I'm thinking <laughs> about, um, I'm thinking about the movie, the Joker, um. uh, actually. Uh, and, and because what's so uh, compelling to me about the Joker is this, this kind of, um, this intensity that comes out of the Joker before these things happen and he becomes the Joker and, you know, like the classical image of the Joker. And he has this paroxysm of, of laughter that just, he's like a neurological condition. Mm-hmm. He's like uh, non-neurotypical. Mm-hmm. He's neurodivergent in the sense of he, he'll just erupt in peals of laughter kind of randomly. Mm-hmm. And there's this moment on the bus, right? In, 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 the in this movie where there's a little black girl that s- engages with him uh and and, and he just and and they're they're having a, a connection mm-hmm. they're having a connection and and the uh, Joaquin Phoenix the the actor just erupts into peals of laughter and 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 the child gets it it's like they're having a connection mm-hmm. and there's this intense like peals of laughter but then the whole bus and the mother clamp down 
on the situation and try to make docile the intensity of just the just the contact right yeah. and and to me it's a it's an extraordinary expression of what society does with these intensities and then and, and then as a result downstream from that you have psychopathy yeah 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 and so you know laughter and joy so i in my visionary somatics training, which will be downstream from the book, I'm I'm doing my best to kind of operationalize uh, schizoanalysis, which is not an easy thing. And in, in many ways, it's not meant to be operationalized, right? Um, but I'm, I'm just doing my best to kind of throw down my own creative riff and do somatic psychology in a Deleuzian fashion. And one of the things in my training will be a will be I'm a certified clown trainer. Mm. Um, And so because I believe very much in the in the healing power of the clown. And I I personally think that the clown is very, very judged. And, you know, it's a very interesting, almost archetypal thing that that the clown uh, has been kind of like glommed together with images of evil. Yeah, it's odd. I find that, it, and sometimes like per- periodic. Yeah, it's so odd, Aaron. Like, and so periodically, what I'll do on the dance floor is I'll I have one of these great clown noses that you can uh, totally move with it, and it's not going to fall off. Periodically, I'll put on my clown nose and just be like, <laughs> and just you know, kind of deconstruct the face. You know, the socially constructed face. I just. And people, uh, as a, I find, like maybe 001 percent of people will join uh, in in the party, uh-huh. you know. And it's so sad, right? It's like I'm sitting here going, "Hey, there's an opportunity to break to deconstruct the face, yeah. which is a whole nother story, right? Deconstructing <laughs> the face. Here's an opportunity to deconstruct, and then most people are just creeped out by it. They, uh, it's as it's as though they might be even reading it as evil interesting where does that come from Aaron? oh my goodness wow yeah so faciality is something i've been thinking about for a long long time and um you know you'll know that the face-to-face encounter in um the the regimes of um attention as they're practiced in schooling and so on is extremely um, it, it enforces an extremely normative posture of the body. So we teach children very early to have eye contact and to, and we, um, ask them to understand hierarchy through eye contact. Look at that. Look at your father when he's speaking to you or look at your mother or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we, we, um, we learn very early, um, and this is partly also intuitive for some bodies to to mimic the movements of another body and another face. So we really center the face in our engagements. Now I'm capable of doing that, um, though I find Zoom or any of those kind of frontal um, mechanisms like this one to be a little bit difficult. I think not so much because of the face-to-face mm. part, but because of the sitting still part, I find that hard. I find it yeah. hard to yeah. to not be able to move out of the frame. But but the people, the majority of the people that I'm close to can't do the face-to-face at all. 
Um, it's impossible wow. for them to process through the face-to-face. The face takes up so much processing energy that they can't hear. And um, and many, many, Mel Bags has talked about that beautifully, so, you know, has talked about how the face-to-face, all they feel is face, face, eyes, 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 face, face, eyes, eyes, and that's all they hear, right? And And there's nothing else that can happen. But interestingly, I think, the clown breaks that. And I think that this is something that many neurodiverse folks have, have recognized that the clown breaks it because the clown doesn't, the clown carries a quality of sidewaysness. And sidewaysness is something we talk a lot in, in the environment that I find myself in. What is it to be in the sideways? If we think about, I'm going to go back to the classroom for a second. If we think about the classroom, the classroom is is orchestrated in the face-to-face in two different forms. And one is supposed to be emancipatory, but really isn't emancipatory at all. The first one is the desks. So the desks facing forward with the teacher looking on. And so you have all the faces looking in one direction and then the teacher looking in the other direction. And the teacher telling the students, stop daydreaming or, you know, put your face up, you know, um, don't draw, you know, don't doodle, all of those things. I mean, I was told as a child not to, doodle, not to look out the window, Um, or um, in the more advanced courses we teach, or in this many, many somatic courses that are taught, we ask people for circles. And circles are also extremely hard because, again, they prompt face-to-face encounters, and they close an environment into that posture. So in my own teaching, I don't um, do that at all. In fact, I learned with other people over years that um, people thrive in the teaching environment if they don't have to be seen. So I've taught with tents in the room where people are in the tent. We've created tunnels where people can hide in the tunnels. And it's not unusual for me to have people lying down when I'm teaching. Now, if I can, I always book a second room where people can go. I tell them to take the class for a walk if they want. So there's no, there's no, enforcement of the face-to-face. But in order to do that, I also had to learn not to privilege learning in the face-to-face, which is to say it takes a certain kind of confidence also to teach people who aren't looking at you and to think of God, you know, am I doing something? Is it doing something? But interestingly, with the clown, you don't ask that question. You don't, you don't think, oh my God, you're not looking at me. Are you with me? Right? Except, of course, if nobody's with you and then you think, oh, my God, you know, now I'm just the freak, you know, and, and people don't want to play with me, you know. So so that's what I found really interesting about your example. And I have to say that I've only and I'm going to make a gross generalization. OK, it's a terrible generalization. It's probably ninety nine percent false. But when I've been in California, I've been uncomfortable the times I've been there because there's been this kind of somatic body that has a shape. And it looks like something and I, and it feels so orthodox to me and it feels like I have to fit it and it says all the right things, you know, and it feels like, like this little control mechanism and it goes to yoga classes and, and it drinks out of big bottles and it, you know, and of course it's a terrible thing to say. And, and this is exists everywhere. So like, forgive me for saying it, but, but I think we also have to be careful that we don't, um, (laughs) <laughs> that, that like we realize it's in our communities too right and and of course i could find that in montreal too like i'm not 
you know, please, please erase this. But yeah, yeah you know, yeah, there's, yeah. there's, there's a way in which. No, it's perfect. <laughs> Control society and the healing arts communities are not immune to that. I totally get what you mean. Don't want to don't want to lose face, right? By moving too quickly in in a yoga class, for example, you know, because everything needs to be done so slow for trauma resolution. So just right. don't move too fast now, and right. don't be too intense now, and yeah. say the right things now, and 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 come on, let's do some face to face co regulation here. <laughs> You yes. know, face to face co regulation here. Let's do some eye gazing here. <laughs> oh, yeah. no, no, no. So, no, or the violent. I mean, for neurodiverse <laughs> bodies, so violent that, you know, let's lie, everybody lie down. Now go, go into your body. Now move it. Like these exercises that, yeah. that force you into an image of a body that call relaxation yeah. that image. They're also making mm -hmm. a docile body. And I hear this all the time yes. by, you know, from neurodiverse yeah. folks who are like, I yeah. hate Shavasana. Never make me do Shavasana again. It's awful. Why can't oh, yeah. we just jump up and down, you know? So, so it's, it's a complicated mm -hmm. thing because of course, of course, there are way worse things in the world than Shavasana. And it's like not on my list, you know, like I, Netanyahu is way up further on my list than Shavasana. So like, I'm not trying to, but, but on the other hand, they also, as we all know, these forms are embodiments of whiteness too. And, and they also privilege a certain body as does the vocabulary of self-care and so on. So it's a tense environment. And I love the clown for all the way that the clown deviates from that. The clown is, is, is potent because the clown is a skiz. That's the thing. The clown is the schizoanalytic force. There's no question of it, I think. Yay. I'm so glad that you, I got a, f a final tingle, tingle <laughs> response from, from that. And so good to end on a tingle response. And so I, I just really appreciate the dialogue. It's so lively. You're, you've really embodied the shape of enthusiasm, which is a mobile shape. It's a, it's a nomadic shape. You know, it's a shape shifter. And I just really, really appreciate you being essentially the first person on the Boundless Body podcast so that we can that that you can help me to set the tone for this. And I just very much appreciate that. I'm wondering if we can end with a quote from from you. It's a short quote. I love it. Okay. It has to do with your passion for innovation, which uh, dovetails with my passion for innovation, too. You know, so so here we go. Here's a quote from Aaron Manning. To express is not to state a fact. To express is to speak with. Any speaking with implies a dialogue, an infinite conversation. An infinite conversation supposes that the work is yet to be invented. That's awesome. <laughs> I just thank you so much for, for your... For your wonderful work in the world, Aaron, and for your advocacy and for your and for your uh, delightful range and your, your amazing juxtaposition of poetry and philosophy. I really, really appreciate that deeply. Well, I've loved being in conversation and I'm, I hope that we can meet in person someday. But thank you for having me.
Yes. I hope to see you another time and hopefully we can have a meeting of the Bryans as well. All right. I think that would be very interesting. <laughs> All right. <laughs> cool. All right. All right. Thanks. And now maybe I can bring out the clown nose sometimes sometime when we meet and and you'll be there to meet me, I'm sure. I, I will. I will. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take care. Bye bye. Take care. Thank you for listening to Boundless Body with the Somatic Doctor. Please leave a comment, subscribe, and like us on social media. We're a swarm, we're a colony, we're a multiplicity. Until next time, be well. <laughs>